So the prophecy was not a failure? Or was it a failure? No. No, it was not a failure. It was a huge success. People repented as a result of it, understanding that as we heard in the back and then we confirmed by Jeremiah 18 that prophecies are conditional when they relate to a nation. Alright. There is one little bit of archaeological evidence that's kind of interesting. That there was a turning toward monotheism for a brief time around this period in Nineveh. Now, I don't get that out of uh, some half-baked uh, Christian who just grabs at stuff. But that's from Donald Wiseman, who is one of the uh, really first-class archaeological students, biblical students, who's an evangelical of our day. And so when he says that, I, not knowing much about archaeology myself, believe that he has some evidence for what he says. So that's the one little piece. We don't have uh, any archaeological evidence of the, the repentance as such, but there was a brief turning to monotheism, which is a very rare and unusual thing, other than down in Egypt. But uh, that occurred at this period, and just for a brief while. So it could very well reflect what took place in that on that occasion. So we ought to learn that repentance then is always possible. No matter how heinous the sin against God. Now, that's something we got to think about. This was pretty heinous sin, skinning people alive. Uh, you know, punching out the eyeballs. This is this is uh, this is sin wide open and then some. So we've got to keep in mind that no matter how heinous sin may be, repentance is possible, and that's one of the things that Jonah had a hard time understanding. Jonah didn't want to understand it. Jonah was upset about it. And that's what we're going to take a look at in just a minute. But it's interesting that God can use even a reluctant preacher to do his will. A sinful preacher to do his will. And you might take as an example that how God can use even someone like that today from what Paul writes in the first chapter of Philippians. Now, where was Paul writing when he wrote the book of Philippians? Jail. Pardon me, where was he writing from? Jail. Jail, right. And uh, here is Paul, manacled, he says, that is a uh, chain around his wrist, manacled to an, uh, some soldier over here who had a chain around his wrist. And I don't know what the hours were, four hours each one. or. But Paul's not thinking about his wrist during this situation. Paul's sitting there thinking about what's on the other end of the chain. There's a man. Paul's thinking captive audience. And uh, 
So Paul begins to work on these men who were from the Praetorian Guard, he says. And that was the crack, those were the crack troops, 16,000 crack troops of the, around the capital in Rome. And uh, these men, as they, Paul has an opportunity to witness them, some of them eventually must have come to Christ because Paul says to us in Philippians that uh, what has happened to me served rather to advance the good news. It's interesting the way the word rather just suddenly pokes out there because when if your preacher got up and the first line he said in his sermon was uh, rather so and so you think rather than what? And uh, obviously the Philippians must have been thinking that Paul had been kind of laid aside by God and was unable to have a witness and was unable to be the missionary he was called to be for this long time that he's here in prison and so they were maybe uh, questioning God's wisdom or whatever Uh, Paul's been laid on the shelf but so Paul says no, no I want you to understand rather than that my imprisonment has served to advance the good news And then he goes on to tell us how. And there are two things that he mentions. So it has become evident to the entire Praetorian Guard and to everyone else that I'm in bonds because of Christ. So he got that message out through some of those soldiers who went back and told their, they got converted, maybe they they then try to get, you know, more time with Paul. Give me more time... uh, with the chains so that I can get down there and uh, learn some more about Paul. And so Paul turns his prison into a seminary and, and these guys go out and they begin to talk to, to their fellow men and, and the message is spread through the whole Praetorian Guard. And of course we know later on there were saints in Caesar's household. The household include everybody. It wasn't just a, a little home like we talked about, but the household was a whole a cat and a kit and caboodle in in a uh, in in the, the palace area. So Paul now has had the opportunity, and it goes on to say unto everyone else, and I'm in bonds because of Christ. And then he says, what else has happened to advance? Most of the brothers in the Lord, gaining confidence by my bonds, have become far more daring and fearlessly speaking God's word. In other words, there were people who probably, when Paul was out there, uh, said, let Paul do it. I'm not, I'm not up to the, to the speed. You know, I, I couldn't begin to do what Paul's doing, and he's doing a very effective job. Nobody needs me. But now, Paul's in prison, so I've got to get out there, and I've got to, somebody's got to get out there, so I'm going to go out there and start preaching to, to people. And so the brothers came out of the woodwork, and they began darelessly daring... It, they became far more daring and fearlessly speaking God's word, he says. And then he goes on, and this is the part I want you to get. Some of these brothers indeed preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. Now some of these brothers who went out were, were, just had wrong motives, terribly wrong motives. They were, they were people who were... Uh, out to get Paul, actually, through what they were doing. He says, the latter are motivated by love, knowing that I have been placed here for the defense of the good news, but the former, that is these people who had the wrong motives, the former 
proclaim Christ from a spirit of rivalry, not sincerely, thinking that they can add affliction to my bonds. So uh, we're going to go out and steal Paul's converts. We're going to go out and do, you know, they have all kinds of bad motives in, in view, but they do are preaching the gospel along with it. Now how does Paul evaluate that? What's he say about that? He says, well, he says, so what? The key thing is that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and I'm glad about it. As a matter of fact, I shall continue to be glad because I know that this will result in my deliverance and so on and so forth. But he is rejoicing, glad, even over the fact uh, over the fact that there are even some people out there out of ill will and rivalry preaching the gospel. So God can use people to preach the gospel even though their own motives may be wrong. And even though they may be pretty rotten people at times. And we all know that. There have been people converted under preachers that you know have turned out to be sour specimens of what a preacher ought to be. Haven't you? Haven't you all know that? I mean, I've, I've had people tell me that I got converted under a certain preacher and uh, is preaching his message and I know that uh, I'm converted and he ran off with the church secretary. You know, things like that. You've all heard of those situations, haven't you? So God can use anybody. It's God who's doing the converting. It's not the preacher, so he can even use a mouthpiece like that. That means he can use a mouthpiece like Jonah, you see. And so the point I'm trying to make is is that, uh, well, I'm not sure what point I want to make. just want you to know that it can happen. <laughs> That's all. Okay, now let's take a look at the next chapter. This is the chapter that we should entitle Jonah and the Whale, (laughs) W-A-I-L. Because here he is complaining and griping and so on. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He saw all these cattle running around with sackcloth on them. He saw the little kids running around with sackcloth on them. He saw the, maybe I don't know whether he saw the king or not, but he saw other people sitting in ashes and he heard the king was sitting in ashes and taking his royal robe off. And here's Job, uh, Job, here's Jonah thinking about all this and he's thinking, man, I went ahead and I preached that message and I got results. <laughs> now that, that, that's so unusual for a preacher to think that way. I, you know, it's all backwards. A preacher usually thinks, man, I got results. Wonderful. Really tickled, you know. Results like this, the greatest sermon ever preached in a sense. I mean, uh, all these people, 120,000 people, uh, or at least children. We'll get to that later and argue that issue. But... Uh, 
all these people, maybe 300,000, that was coming to some kind of repentance or at least exhibition of it as a result of my message. And it wasn't a very well-prepared message either as far as I'm concerned. Uh, God may have prepared it well, but I didn't have to do much work or anything else. I had a message that's, and it was pretty clear, and that's all I did. I just went around yelling everywhere, 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And I get this result. But he's furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord. Isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? When he sat there after he got the message, go and preach to Nineveh. Here's what he thought. He's going back now and telling you what he thought back then when he heard he was going to go. Those guys are going to believe this. And they're going to repent. And I don't want that to happen. That means that instead of God destroy him, they're going to come down here and they're going to they're going to invade our country and they're going to do all the wicked things they did to those other countries out there. They're going to do that to us. And so Nineveh saying, uh, I mean, he's saying, that's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. So there you got it. Why did he leave? We know why he left. This is the reason. He gives it to us here as a flashback. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to mercy. Uh, Slow to anger, rich in faithful love. The one who relents from sending disaster. Uh, Where do we read about God being merciful and compassionate and slow uh, to become angry? You know any place? Okay. Exodus 34, 6 is a good passage on that. Probably the earliest one. But God is, is, is merciful. And that's what God was up to here. God was not merely, merely uh, saving Ninevites. That was part of it. But he was demonstrating his mercy. God was the one who was great in this picture. Not Jonah, not what was happening to the Ninevites per se, but it was God who was showing his character, who was demonstrating what he's like. A lot of people have a hard time with that because God demonstrates his character in other ways too. He has more aspects to his character than merely mercy and grace. He also is a God of wrath. He's a God who does destroy cities and eventually destroyed Nineveh when the iniquity of the Ninevites was full. And he does that also to demonstrate his character. That's what we read in Romans 9. It says that what if God willing to demonstrate, willing to make known his mercy uh, suffered uh, long with the people who were sinful and so on. And then it says, what if he willing to demonstrate his wrath? Demonstrated on the vessels of wrath that were designed for that purpose. You see, sin was ordained in this world 
Now this is hard for people to take. Sin was ordained in this world to demonstrate God's character. God could not have rightly demonstrated his mercy and his grace if there had not been sin because there would have been nobody to demonstrate it on. He could not have demonstrated his wrath if there had no, been no sin out there that he could rightly have demonstrated that wrath, that side of his character with reference to. And that is awfully hard for people to take. That's hard for them to understand. Uh, in fact, people come along and they say, well then why does he uh, resist? Uh, what, what, I mean, why does he punish? Because nobody can resist his will. And if God has determined that some people are, are going to uh, uh, experience his wrath and some are going to experience his mercy and grace, then why do they complain? Why does he complain for it? Nobody can resist his will. And what does, what does Paul then say in that ninth chapter of Romans? He goes on to say, Aha, I knew you were going to ask that. And here is my answer. He says, Who are you to speak that way to God? The potter can do what he wants with the clay. It's his clay. And so we are clay. We are clay in the potter's hands. God may use us in whatever way he cares to use us. To demonstrate his mercy. To demonstrate his wrath. But never apart from us making decisions that are in accord with this. Decisions made in a responsible fashion. Nobody is dragged into heaven because he didn't want to be in heaven, but God wanted him there. And nobody is dragged into hell because you know, he wanted to be in heaven. He really wanted to be the kind of person he was. That was the kind of person who was headed to hell. So it's tough, it's hard, but again we see God demonstrating his mercy to a a group of people like this who are going to come down and they're going to do things in Israel. Difficult things to the Israelites. The Assyrians are going to come down and they're going to tear up cities right and left. But they didn't quite get into Jerusalem, but nevertheless, they made a mess of things. So, <clears throat> God's in charge. That's all we have to say. That's where we have to leave it. And it's not apart from what we want or what we will or what we decided through that. We're not fatalists. We believe that God has ordained things according to his will but also according to our will at the same time. In other words, uh, fatalism says you're going to get it on such and such a day, on such and such a corner, no matter what you do, that's where you're going to get it. It's going to happen to you. You're going to get hit by the car. Such and such a day, such and such a corner, no matter what you do. It's all, it's kismet. It's, it's, it's faith. Faith. But we say, you're going to get it on such and such a corner, and such and such a day, hit by that car, because, because, 
instead of watching that stoplight, you were looking at something else. Now there's all the difference then between fatalism and a proper view of this matter, a Calvinistic or Reformed view of this matter, that says that what takes place takes place in God's will, just exactly what he wants, but through your responsible or irresponsible, in this case, action. But action that it, for which you are held responsible, what I mean. So God has planned not only the end, he has planned the means. He's planned the means, and the means is you will do what you want to do, and you will get the result and the action. But that's all part of the plan of God, too. So here are the Ninevites, here are the people. we got all these things going at once, and it's, it's hard to, t- to put your mind around all of them, but God is slow to anger, become angry. At, and so he was slow to become anger and compassionate. God of mercy and compassion. He was showing both. And eventually he showed the wrath to Nineveh. Now, well, let's just go on a little further. Now, we read about Jonah. <clears throat> Better for me to live than to die. die. Die than to live, excuse me. The Lord asks, is it right for you to be angry? Now, was it right for Jonah to be angry or not? I mean, you know, here are these awful people. <clears throat> Shouldn't you be angry at those kinds of people? Pardon me? I can't quite hear you. I'm still not getting it. Yell it. It's okay to be angry at the sin, what they're doing. Oh. So it was okay to be angry at them. At the sin. Well, you know, God doesn't punish sin in hell. He punishes people in hell. So we can't separate sin from the people who do it. Uh, so is it alright to be angry at those sinful people? Well, he was angry for a selfish reason. His selfish reason, he wanted his people to survive. Was that, is that a bad thing? Well, no. I mean, you know. But when God told him to go, then it became a then it became sin. Oh. So so where does the sin lie? In his anger that God would spare them based on their repentance, he had no business being angry. He was angry that these people had repented, that's right. And he was angry because God had brought this repentance about. So he was angry at God. He wasn't just angry at the, the people getting away with their sin, so to speak. He was angry with God, basically. You know, anytime you complain, it's really a complaint against God because you believe in providence, right? Providence is everything. Providence. He said it first day, there it is. All through what we do. Providence means God's at work in his world. So anything that happens in God's world, and we complain about it, that's really a complaint against God, right? Am I right or wrong? 
So was it right for Jonah to be angry? Yeah. No, it's nothing wrong with justice, right? In fact, God did do it eventually. But the thing is, God is just and He's also merciful. And when our anger is a reflection of God's anger, we're angry for the right reasons. Purposes of God were were all right. If we're angry for anything different. We're out of line. And uh, when God chooses to be merciful and show His mercy, mercy that's the way we ought to be. When He chooses to show His justice and His wrath, then we ought to be accordingly. So we got to get in line with God. Okay, good. Good. So he was wrong in being angry then. Because God was not angry at this point. He was slow to anger and his anger was not yet being manifested, right? He was slow to anger. This is not a place where he was his anger is being manifested, where his wrath was being poured out. This is a place where his mercy was being poured out. And for Jonah to be angry... He was angry at God, really. Because he was saying, God, this is, shouldn't happen. I didn't want it to happen. I did everything I could to keep it from happening. I did not want your will to take place. That's what he was saying, in effect. And not of course... This, not this way. What? Not this way. No, right. Well, that was what God's will was. And uh, he, he had a pretty good hunch that was going to happen. And so he didn't want that to happen. So what God wanted, he didn't want. And when the Lord says, is it right for you to be angry? That's the question. And the answer is just what Joe said. Sure, it's right to be angry if God's angry. And we should fall right in line. But on the other hand, if God is merciful and showing his grace, then we had better stand back and wait until the anger of God manifests itself if and when it ever does. We at now will will be rejoicing at the mercy of God instead. In fact, he should have been rejoicing, shouldn't he? I mean, he should have been he, he should have been elated. This man should have not only he shouldn't have been angry, he should have been jumping up and down for joy that God had been merciful to so many people. And that, that's the point that's being made here that God begins to make. So we'll look at it. Any questions first? We're in sticky stuff here, and I want it to be sticky because it is sticky for us to think about. Yeah. Sorry, question, but it's a lot of times people are angry at God because God didn't acquiesce to their desires and their plans. You know, we want God to act according to our will. Yeah, we certainly do. Yeah, uh, that would be, be awfully nice if he did all the time, <laughs> would it? No, yeah. it probably wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, no, it wouldn't be, right. I think another thing is, is that we tend to enjoy God's mercy when it's levied to us. Yeah. But we're not so happy. This is mercy to somebody else we don't like, right? Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. All right. So, let's go, let's go on. Uh, by the way, who, who, what other prophet uh, sat down under a broom tree one time and, and said, now, Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. It's almost the exact quote. Elijah. Elijah, Elijah, right. And when did that happen, by the way? After a mountaintop victory. 
after a mountaintop victory. Yeah, the opposite kind of thing. Yeah. Where where the prophets of Baal are are, are killed and uh, all the rest of it up on Mount Carmel and everything, and he then he's afraid of a uh, Jezebel. Ahab was wrapped around her finger. Ahab and me. It was Jezebel who was the, the big big shot in that team, and uh, uh, she was creating all the problems. And he was scared to death of her. She sent a message to him and said, I'm going to get you. And so he took off and he got, he began to sit on a broom tree, whatever that is. And uh, there he was. And the Lord comes to him and tells him it's the wrong thing. i got more for you yet to do and so on. So here's another man, another prophet want the Lord to take his life. There's something how these prophets want the Lord to take their life. <laughs> Well, it was a big revival. It didn't last, incidentally. And we're going to see, I hope, if we ever get to it, uh, we're going to see also that that John the Baptist, the the second Elijah, had a great revival that didn't last. And that also led to some problems of a similar sort. All right? Jonah left the city, and he sat down east of it. So here's Jonah, he says, okay, it's, they're all running around in sackcloth, they're all sitting in ashes and dumping on their heads and things, and, uh, you know, these people are repenting, and God's not just, well, maybe he will still, maybe it isn't for real, maybe maybe it's just all a show and so on. I'm going to sit around for 40 days, we'll go find out. So he gets himself a spot, and builds himself a little place to sit, and uh, it says he made a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Now, a shade meant, meant a lot in, those, in that community, in those places, and uh, we'll see a little more about that in a minute. Then the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. I, uh, maybe we're down around... I don't know, maybe we're 38, 39 days now that they, Jonah's been sitting there and, and he's, he's gotten pretty hot and bothered and nothing's happened yet and, uh, and the, the heat's been beating down on him the whole time and this shelter hasn't been all that protective so the Lord shoots up a, probably a castor oil plant is what most people think and the castor oil plant evidently had uh, was about 10 feet tall one stem with a big leaf that could be as wide as eight feet and uh, uh, yeah it would provide some real real shade if that's what it was and that's what most people think this was so the, the Lord provides the Lord appoints the Lord providentially at work again and he, he puts gets a plant and up comes the plant quickly and you know, it may have just grown up over that 40-day period because they were rather quickly, uh, they grew rather quickly to a great height. So then the Lord appointed the plant and it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. Now, we've got Jonah displeased and Jonah pleased. Should he have been pleased with the plant at this point or not? Well, yeah, but... I mean, it, it was a comfort to him. 
Yeah, that way. And God provided it. Yeah. <laughs> but he's up there in sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's sitting there in sin, and he's sitting there grousing and complaining, and uh, uh, more upset as the days go on to forty, and uh, now it's maybe day thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight. You know, and uh, he's getting so sunburned he can't even stand it. And he, this thing comes up and he feels a lot better. As a result of that, it, it gets throws some of the heat off. And uh, so he's greatly pleased. He's having, he's, uh, he's greatly pleased. He thinks God's blessing him in the midst of his sin. Yeah, he's, he's, he's thinking of himself. He isn't thinking at all, these, these, these people down there, except that things have gone all wrong, not the way he wanted to go, but, ah, at last I got some relief. Now, yeah, I mean, sure, you should be happy to get some relief, but under these conditions, should he be greatly pleased at anything, you know? Disobedient to God, he's, he's arguing with God, he's, he's already once messed things up, now he's ready to mess it up again, or at least to see it messed up. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just a little little selfishness here, it seems, coming out in Jonah's part, isn't it? That he's greatly pleased with, but we'll see. Anyway, when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant that withered. God appointed. God's at work again. There's providence. God appointing. And the plant comes up and gets a hold of this, this I mean the worm comes gets this plant it's it's finished so then what does he say well he's uns- upset I'm sure it withers but then we read as the sun was rising God appointed a scorching east wind now I don't know whether you've ever lived in in, in California now. anybody ever lived in California in southern California what what happens Santa Ana winds come in and they come off the desert and everybody is so hot that you, you know, this wouldn't do a thing. It probably evaporates sitting there. And uh, everything is just scorching hot. That's when everything burns up because everything's dry and so forth. Well, this was a Sirocco and probably even worse than any of the Santa Ana that we feel out west. This one was a God-appointed uh, storm or, or, or wind. And it was a scorching wind, a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head. So he almost fainted. And he wanted to die. There he goes again. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. So Jonah is whining again, Jonah and the whale. Here we got it again. This business of better for me to die than to live. Well, it wasn't better for him to die than to live. God had purposes for him. Maybe more purposes yet. We don't know. But he, if God put him there and God wanted him to see that city after 40 days still intact, then it was not good for him to, to die. So God asked Jonah exactly the same question again. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? 
Now, was it right for him to be angry about the plant? At this point, was it right? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. What's that mean? Well, that means that what we receive from God is a gift and we have no right to be uh, angry when he... Uh, yeah, but uh, it's scorching wind, being does, almost fading, the plant's shot. Uh, his shelter doesn't do much for him. I mean, you know, worms are in the way. And uh, yeah, yeah. Praise the Lord anyway. What? Praise the Lord anyway. Baloney. Baloney? <laughs> I mean, you could say that, but you're not there in the scorching wind. No, I'm mean, not. That doesn't mean you shouldn't, though. That's, That's right. Pardon me? So that doesn't mean you shouldn't. I mean, Joe had his whole family killed. I'm sure Joe would have rather sat in the wind and had his family stay alive than than have his whole family killed, and yet Job himself, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. I think it's your attitude and your heart towards God, and that's where Jonah was at. He wasn't at the same place, say, like Job was. God had never instructed him to go sit and wait outside the city either, though. He was there of his own doing. It was his own making. (laughs) Jonah's angry with God again, isn't he? He's angry with God again. And, of course, he had reason to feel awful about it and be sorry to see that thing happen. But all of his concern, all of his concern here that he shows is where? Self-centered. It's all self-centered. Every bit of it. And he answers, yes. (laughs) It is right. I'm angry enough for what reason? To die. He wants to die. This is what the the third time or fourth time we've heard him say, Lord, just get me out of this mess. Do you know people like that who who just want to die? It's terrible. People just want to die to get rid of it. Uh, It's not right. When God wants you here, you ought to be here. And if you're here, there's a reason to be here. And God hasn't left you here without a reason to be here. So the thing to do is find out why you're here and get involved in it. But just go around complaining every first, every time you, you get an opportunity and say, Lord, take me out of it. I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. That's all he says, seems. And uh, Jonah's whole attitude is, is dead wrong. Uh, dead wrong. So the Lord says, you cared about the plant. Yeah, he did. He cared about the plant in the sense that he sure would have liked to have nurtured it against that worm some form or, or kept the worm from coming to it so that it would stay as, as in the shape it was so it would keep the, the scorcher off of him. But uh, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. That's interesting. Why that point? What's, what in the world is that all about? Well, he put no effort into the... He didn't plant it. He didn't feed it. He didn't fertilize it. it just he didn't do a thing, right. He didn't, thing he didn't even it. keep the worm away from he, it. He got, he, got, he got the benefit of the shade. And so, he just, out of God's providence, he, when he didn't get it anymore, there was no reason to really complain. Because Excellent. He didn't yeah. do anything to begin with to... to uh, make that right and these people didn't deserve any more God's blessing than uh, 
Jonah did. Jonah was a reluctant prophet who had been doing all the wrong things and uh, God blessed him in spite of it and here are these people who were getting blessed in spite of their sin or being, being able to repent and not be destroyed and Jonah doesn't get it. But God tells him what the story is. You cared about the plant, she didn't labor over it, did not grow it, appeared in the night, perished in the night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000? Now the argument is whether it's children or people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well as many animals, which is an interesting addition. But Calvin, for example, goes for the 120,000 children. Uh, but uh, others who see the word children here uh, mean, take it to mean people in that these people are childlike. Do what you want with it. It doesn't matter because it's a bunch of people, whichever it is. And it certainly did include kids, and it included the animals. God was concerned about the animals. That's what a note to end the whole book on, as well as many animals. Remember what Proverbs 12:10 says about the animal? A good man takes care of his animals. Yeah, good man takes care of his animals. You can tell whether a man's any good or not by the way he deals with his animals. Not only the way he deals with his wife or deals with her husband, but with their animal. And here God is concerned about the animal. And the animals had the sackcloth on. So the animals were in a state of mourning and repentance, so to speak, at least symbolically. And uh, they too were, were, were going to survive as a result. Well, it's quite a story. Quite, quite a record of what took place. But that's not the end of it. It may be the end of our session right now, but we got more to see about this. Even though we came to the end of the book, there's stuff in the New Testament that we've got to look at because Jesus talks about all this. So we're going to conclude with what Jesus has to say and it may be of interest. I don't know whether it is to you or not, but it ought to be. And uh, I think it's great interest. Okay. So we'll take a break right here.